Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Uh, last time around, we looked at the album A Hard Day's Night, the third Beatles album from July 1964. And this is the second part of our deep dive look at this album. And when we left last week, we were uh, right at the end of a busy recording schedule at the end of uh, February 1964, when they are trying to uh, get as many songs in the can as possible before filming begins for the movie on March the 2nd. In 1964. So that gives us the date of March the 1st, where they're back in the studio trying to um, get some songs done. And the last film soundtrack song that's recorded before shooting begins is I'm Happy Just to Dance with You. One for George. One for George. Yeah, yeah. he's got John to have that. That was, that, was, that was written for George to give him a piece of the action, said John in 1980. Thanks, said George. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and it's, you know, that's, is it formulaic? Is it, is it the, it's it's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit of a throwback to the, you know, uh, I want to hold your hand, I want to dance with you, you know, a little bit formulaic. I think Paul admits that and uh, he, he says, uh, anyway, this one was just a straightaway straight co-write for George. So it's, they're quite dismissive. Both John and Paul are quite dismissive. I, I like this song. I think it's a kind of, you know, very upbeat, very kind of joyous and very infectious. I think it is what it is. I don't think there's any deep layers to be pulled away no. from it. And, no. you know, it, it. you know, if, if you're playing the old Beatles psychology game, this kind of split between John and Paul and George, you know, by this point in 1964, you know, that mightn't be very satisfactory to George to say, oh, here's a here's a, a, a song for you. I mean, George obviously had his first written song on with the Beatles. So he yes. had, you know, floated the balloon up into the sky of being a songwriter who could contribute a song for the band. But he wasn't contributing anything uh, specifically for A Hard Day's Night. No, at this stage, he's he's in the middle of writing that song, You Know What To Do, that yeah. kind, of, kind of gets lost and then turns up on uh, Anthology. Anthology. Um, but he, he uh, is giving interviews at this time saying, oh, you know, it might take me three months to write another song. It's just kind of slow. So, you know, he, he very much sort of confessed that Don't Bother Me was just, I thought I would try and write a song, see, you know, how do you write a song? Can I write yeah. a song? Um, so he's not, he's not producing anything at this, at, at this stage specifically for the film. So they've got to come up with a, a song for George. And he is saying in interviews, oh, I'm a bit lazy at writing or I'm a bit slow. And, you know, yeah. not, every, not every songwriter writes in the same way. But it, it is interesting that the Beatles provoked each other to kind of work better, work faster or harder. That he, you know, John and Paul are writing songs in very narrow timelines that he didn't, yeah. you know, he didn't see that that's where he should be going or whether he felt John and Paul have this covered or whether he hadn't figured out that the, the money was better in songwriting yet or, you know, I wonder what was driving him or not driving him. I think it's indicative of just generally the way that, that he worked. I mean, he was never, you know, we, we know when it comes to sort of guitar solos, he's very meticulous. He works things out. He doesn't have the the natural sort of musical flair that, that Paul has. You know, the mu- music just kind of pours out of 
Paul McCartney. Mm. Um, George is more it's it's more craftsman like it's it's uh, it's very meticulous. He's he's happy to spend a long time and you see that all the way through, you know, right up to not being a point of conflict uh, uh, in, in the letter B sessions. You know, yes. George wants to take his time and craft the thing and he puts a lot of thought into it. Paul is much more kind of fluid. He, he, he's got a greater facility. Yeah. Um, and I, I suspect it's just that. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind, and this is where I'm going to talk for an hour about um, <laughs> George's songwriting, is um, did George ever write a, a bad song for the Beatles? Did he ever write a one and one is two? Did he ever write a bad to me? Well, you know, the mm -hmm. uh, he, don't bother me a bit. Uh, yeah, you know what to his, do got, got binned. Yeah, but that's his first song. Yeah, okay, so fair enough. John and Paul have had, what, four or five years? Yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a mess that was being put about at the time that they had 100 songs ready to go. But, you know, yeah. they, they got rid of all of their kind of crappy songs where at the beginning nobody heard them. Yes. You know, thinking of linking, all that stuff. George is having to write these in the full glare of, of the kind of public spotlight and also in the context of, you know, he's the third songwriter in a band that has Lennon and McCartney in. That is true. And I mean, if you're saying Don't Bother Me is day one of his songwriting and, you know, something like I Lost My Little Girl is day one yeah. of Paul's songwriting, exactly. you know, to get from Don't Bother Me to, uh, you know, the, the songs on Revolver. Yeah. Even, yeah, or just, yeah, yeah no, the, 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 I'm not, you know. Uh, so I think, I think it's that his, his output is last because I think in part he is he spends more time on yep. it it doesn't come as easily and he has to put more effort into it and uh, possibly because it's it's intimidating as well so on the yeah. one hand it, you're, it's intimidating to be in a band with, with John Lennon and Paul McCartney but on the other hand that's the competition so that's what's pushing him he's not going to bring something in unless it's uh, kind of meets the standard so and that's why you, I think that yeah. the, you know, you you know what to do. It doesn't it doesn't make the cut. It just disappears. He knows it's not good enough. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't it doesn't get presented. So I'm happy just to dance with you. Is uh, you know George's song. It's the first ever Beatles song recorded on a Sunday, and uh, they eventually get a complete track and be some overdubs on top of that. It appears live a little bit in 1964 as one of George's kind of spotlight songs yes. before he switched to uh, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby as being the George spotlight and you know it, it, it is an interesting shift in that dynamic that you know in the in the cavern it was almost one by times one times one you know yeah. john paul george yeah. songs um that it's kind of you know here's the here's the george moment um and this is george's soundtrack song and it's the uh, the last song as we said that's recorded before the movie uh, is made so there's never any actual reach to give ringo a song at this point no that 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 doesn't seem to that that doesn't seem to have been on the cards at all yeah. Um, and I suppose, you know, Ringo's spotlight in the film is is him sauntering along the canal. Uh, that's not going to be soundtracked by a, an up-tempo. Yeah, Ringo song. Ringo but, song. But Ringo has a massive contribution to this film, as we're about to hit upon. They start filming A Hard Day's Night uh, the next day. They, they finish their recording session on March 1st yeah. by doing Long Tall Sally and I Call Your Name. They go off to the Long Tall Sally EP. But on March 2nd, the next day, filming begins. And the filming officially runs from March the 2nd to April the 24th, 1964. Um which, you know, is essentially two months. And for a band that have broken through as the biggest band in the world, it's a bit of a risk when you think about it for them to essentially disappear for two months and yes. go and make a movie that they're not doing performances, that they're not doing gigs, that, you know, some other kind of Colonel Tom person might have just, you know, got them on some kind of North American slog. But yeah. this is what they've signed up to is to make this movie. But when they start filming on March the 2nd, the movie does not have a title. No. And Beatles this is film number one. Yeah. Yes, which, uh, you know, would have been a neat enough title, I suppose. Um, but they need to find a title. And so within that space of them filming, there's one song that gets recorded and it is uh, on April the 14th and it's the song A Hard Day's Night. So how do we yeah. get from Beatles film number one to A Hard Day's Night? There's the old story, isn't there? Yes. So this is, uh, you know, they finish filming uh, one day and Ringo says boy, it's been a hard day's night. And they go, let's write the song right here. And this is, this is, this is, so this is, this is, this is the, this is the kind of standard built into it, built into the myth um, that Ringo 
comes off with this phrase by accident, just a malapropism that, that he comes out with. Uh, they hear it. Dick Lester says, there's the title of the, of the film, guys. Uh, and then there's, you know, the, they, they rush off and John writes the song overnight and bang, and that's it. A um, little bit more to it uh, than that. Yes, it's codified that, you know, Ringo, you know, says things like tomorrow never knows and it's a hard day's night and everyone just jumps on it. You do wonder what the ratio is of things Ringo said that weren't ignored, that were ignored to... That, 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 ignored, got, yes. that got yeah. used. Um, yeah. But, you know, obviously it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of one of these Beatle legends that, you know, Ringo just said it one day and we were like, that's a good title. Um, but yeah. it obviously is a fantastic title. But the phrase, if you're eagle-eyed enough, uh, has existed before the album, the song, and the movie. Yes, it's in a book. It's it's in John's uh, John's in his own right book. Yeah. Um, so uh, I I I don't think at any point has John said that Ringo didn't say this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he seems to. You know, Paul has said this is when it what happened, and, and Ringo has said he said it. John has never said he did. So it could be something that Ringo said, but it was picked up much earlier, and um, it appears uh, in John's book. So that book is published in in March of '64, um, and you know probably people are aware of what that book is. It, it's a sort of satirical, slightly surrealist. Uh, um, collection of poems that some of which go right back to to john's uh school days um but this book includes a poem called sad michael mm-hmm. which contains the line uh he'd had a hard day's night that day for michael was a cocky watchtower and yeah. uh it's 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 um you know the book in his own right which as you say comes out in march 64 um it's another amazing thing about that timeline which is there is so much happening you know, there is yeah. Conquering America. There is, you know, you know, they're, they're, they're in the top five records in the States at this point. And they're making a film. They're writing a soundtrack to a film. And at some point along the line, somebody has said, you need to get a book out as well of original writing yeah. and put it into the shops. Uh, and there's a little bit of a, you know, it's a massive seller in March 64 in his own right. And they do do a little bit of promo. There's all those kind of very quaint photos of, you know, John holding up the book and there's some funny stuff of them tearing up the book. And all the rest. George, yeah, George kind of behind him tearing up the book or, or pretending to, yeah. Um, but it's mass. it's a massive seller. So you think about sort of book sales today, but it sold 50,000 copies on the first day in the UK. Um, so on day one, it sold 50,000 copies. So this is this is maybe what's keeping them in the public eye while they're off, off um, filming. But um, as I say, it, it's used there, but John does say, you know, it's an off the cuff remark by, by Ringo. Although he kind of says, you know, it wasn't said to be funny. Yeah, it was just a a kind of mistake or or a miss uh, speaking, you know? Yeah, and the the, the book in his own right, I think, also subtly pushes this, you know, it's another of these things that pushes the notion that the Beatles are a band apart, that they are different, you know, we're, we're not getting a, you know, a book from one of the pacemakers, for instance, you know, this no. is, this, this, this kind of puts them, you know, into this realm of, well, you know, John is kind of this edge of literacy. And I know certain people pulled a thread at the time and say, well, you know, if he's able to write books with this kind of wording and this kind of novelty, why isn't he putting this into his songs? And that, yeah. that does kind of provoke him a, a, a little later on. And, um, but it's, it's, they're having conversations with Dick Lester and, this title of A Hard Day's Night comes up. And John does seem to write the song to order that evening very quickly. Yes. I mean, so 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 you must imagine that maybe at the end of a hard day's work where they're mm. filming, maybe Ringo trots out the phrase. You know, this is a phrase that is in perhaps in you know in, in common enough currency between the band. You know, Ringo has said it, John's used it, and then there's a joke made of it, and Lester says, Oh, that that that's a good title. So it's undoubtedly the phrase has been used. It comes into to, to Lester's hearing. Yeah, and, I've obviously assumed um, it's a phrase that's used more than once. It's not just used once yes, and everyone flicks yes. their fingers and points. That it's just a part of yeah. their linga franco between the bottom. Yes, I think it's it's you know like that language that they have between yeah. themselves or little set phrases and and, and things like that. Um, uh, so, so yes, John goes home and writes it, and it's it's a John song. Absolutely, 100%. He comes in the next day, he has the lyrics written on a little matchbook 
cover and um, they, they sort of premiere it. So, you know, we've talked about A Hard Day's Night being sort of very much a, a John album and trying to pull the thread of, you know, which bits are autobiographical and which bits aren't. And, you know, he's definitely working like a dog at this point in his life. And when he thinks about getting home to you, you know, well, where is his home? Julian Lennon turns one at the same month on, on April the 8th. And, you know, he's married to Cynthia. He's leading a very different kind of life to the, the other Beatles, isn't he? Yes, and he's clearly, you know, he's not present. I mean, he's not uh, uh, present in Julian's life in the way that, that you would imagine you would want to be. Uh, mm-hmm. Cynthia is responsible here. This is the period at which he's being advised by his accountants, you know, you're making so much money, you've got you've to buy a house. Yeah. Um, and then in July of 64, he will buy the house in Kenwood that, that sort of becomes synonymous with him mm-hmm. all the way through to sort of 68. Yeah, he buys Kenwood for about £20,000 in July 1964 and then spends £40,000 renovating it to his rock star demands. Maybe this is the first episode of MTV Cribs there ever was. Um, you know, it's got 22 rooms, he turns into 17 rooms, he landscapes the grounds, he puts on a swimming pool. Overall, that £60,000 he spent on it is equivalent to about £1.3 million in in modern money, yes. which... It's still it's, kind of cheap by rock star mansion standards in, well, in the maybe 21st so, century. But, 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 but it's the idea that you buy something at £420,000 and then you spend £850,000. Yeah. You, know, you, you would think there must have been a house that he could just have walked into for a million pounds. You know, that, that, that uh, um, he's taking on a lot of work here. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, there are interviews where Cynthia is sort of saying she 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 has left to kind of furnish this house. And uh, it, it, you don't get a sense it's, it's not a cosy family home. Yeah. Um, and, you know, John stays in the house, but after John and Cynthia divorce, it gets sold at the end of 1968 for 40,000. So that's not a great investment. Not a a great investment. Uh, You know, that's kind of Apple in a nutshell in a way. And it's sold to uh, Bill Martin, the songwriter, who along with Phil Coulter wrote songs like Puppet on a String and Congratulations, which earns them some money off. All things must pass. It's all circular. It's all it's connected. All circular. It's all circular. So it's uh, it's Johnny's birthday is is the song that they rip off. Sorry that they they do a an homage. <laughs> <laughs> so on April fourteenth, in the middle of filming, John has uh, you know he's demoing or premiering this song with Paul to uh, Walter Shenson, the producer of the film, and uh, you know they need to get a last minute recording session made to to get it down. So on April the 16th, 1964, they get into uh, Abbey Road Studio 2 to record the title track for A Hard Day's Night. And they, they're still about 10 days off the end of filming. And, you know, we kind of, you know, we've such a tight association with that film name and what it means. You know, it, it's it's strange to think that they're kind of working in the dark and trying to feel what yeah. was right. It, it, it turns out to be so right for the movie, that song. You know, I, I guess it's a bit like making an album. Sometimes they don't know what the title is till they're they're finished as, it, as well. It sort of, yes, it sort of presents itself. But uh, yeah, and it, it comes together. You know, they're still tinkering with it in the studio, but it comes together incredibly quickly. So three hours from start to finish seems to be the timeline. And, and Maureen Cleave is in the studio when this happens, and she has a couple of recollections. Yes, and again... Uh, you know, I have a lot of time for uh, Maureen Cleave, certainly more time for Maureen Cleave than for uh, Dick James. But um, mm-hmm. she tells a story. And again, she puts herself slightly in, in the center of it. So she says the, the, the original uh, line was, but when I get home to you, I find my tiredness is through and I feel right. all right. And she said, no, that's a bit, that's, that's a bit weak. Um, and said he just immediately crossed that line out and said, uh, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. So he, he, he just immediately changed it. Um, and she, she describes the fact that this just seemed to, the song just seemed to come together like magic out of thin air. And it seems to have been a bit of a crowded room in Abbey Road that day because, you know, they are trying to deliver you know, they know how to deliver an opening track off, a, off an album, but now they yeah. have to deliver an opening track uh, off, a, off a movie. And so you have Dick Lester getting involved and, you know, you know they kind of want something dramatic and exciting and cinematic to, to kick open the album and the movie. Yes. So, the, you know, you, you can hear on, on the uh, there are bootlegs kicking around and the first take is on, on Anthology One and you can hear McCartney's 
bass isn't quite right. George's guitar is appalling. Um, they're kind of working their way towards something. And Jeff Emmerich in, in, in his book says, you know, Dick Lester kept insisting we need, we need something big. We need a big kind of opening punch. Yeah. Um, and that's why they, they come up with that really iconic opening chord. And um, then Lester is again saying, oh, and at the end, we need a kind of dreamy fade out. So Dick Lester plays that joke about, you know, he plays a little jazz piano and you know, how, how big an instrument is this that you play, you know, but he, <laughs> he um, so he's, he's purporting to have some input into the musical arrangement of this song. And Emmerich is very clear that he was not welcome in the studio and the Beatles yeah. did not. But but despite the fact that he wasn't welcome, they're clearly taking those ideas on board. So they come up with that opening, that opening like, chord. It's a very fine balance. I mean, the song certainly isn't compromised by the fact that it has that strident opening chord and that very cinematic no. fadeaway at the end. Um, now, we could maybe do a spin-off series of podcasts about the opening chord of A Hard yes. Day's Night and yes. how to play it. And we could do all sorts of things. We're, we're not going to... Uh, to get into that. Put your put your finger here. And, and, <laughs> Play along at home. Do, do yeah. kind of a, like a guitar Bob Ross on it. Um, but there is a couple of things going on there. It seems to be that there is you know a bit of George Martin on piano in the background Again, of that chord, yeah. and uh, that Paul is playing you know notes on his bass. So it's a full sound. It, it's a composite. Yes, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a composite, and I think that's what makes it difficult for people to, to, to think, what is that? What is that chord? Yeah. You know, to, to just, you can't just pick up an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar and just play, play the chord it. and have it sound, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, and a it's composite. a bit like the chord at the end of a hard day's night, which is also a or sorry, at the end of a, a day in the life, which is also yeah. a, you know, a composite chord. It's not just one instrument making that noise. Um, my favorite anecdote about this is one you dug up from, from Gary Moore, the late great Gary Moore, who was a friend of George Harrison's. Yes, yes. So they, they they kind of hung out together. He played on one of the Wilburys tracks. He played on George's last concert in 1992. So he he tells this story. I'm just going to read this out. He said, George was a great guy and I had some great times with him. I also had some embarrassing moments like the time he played me the opening chord to A Hard Day's Night. And it wasn't the way I had played it all those years. And I said, is that right? Are you sure that's right, George? And he looked at me and he went, <laughs> yes, Gary, it's right. I felt like the earth was swallowing me up, but at least he showed me the chord. All my friends didn't know it, but I learned it. So, uh, you yeah. know, so it's just this idea that he's selling the <laughs> guy that George played Harrison. the chord. Are you sure that's right? That, that can't be right. That's well, not the way I play it, you know? He adds an extra bit of information, which is interesting, uh, Gary Moore. All you guitarists at home can try this, where he says, you know, when he showed me the chord, it made sense because the little arpeggio fade at the end of A Hard Day's Night are the notes of that chord broken down, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not a great yeah. guitar player, but uh, you know, it's certainly worth trying to pick that out and see whether, whether it works. Um, so they do a number of takes on this and it's track nine. That is the, the, the keeper track. And they do a yeah. couple of uh, uh, overdubs to, 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 to get it right. And as we said, you know, they, they work on that dreamy fade out, that dreamy arpeggiated fade out is a tricky thing to get right. So when they played it live, well, they, they, they kind of just, uh, yeah, when they play it live, it's not quite the same. And um, there's a terrible version on um, the first BBC. Yeah. Uh, if you remember that, where they, I think in the notes, the liner notes, they say they had forgotten how to do it. So what they, what they do is they just splice in an edit from the single. And then pretend uh, that they've been playing it. And pretend, and it's the most ham-fisted uh, uh, edit. Uh, yes. you know, it's not even not even close. Not even close. Um, so there's overdubbing. There's a potential George solo, but that doesn't uh, happen. Jeff Emmerich, uh, he's not particularly kind about George's contribution. I to just, this is this is this is this is why I really despise. Uh, I was going to say dislike, but it's more that it's like this book. Yeah, he says. Um, George was even more ham-fisted than usual as he gamely plied his way through one mediocre guitar solo after another. Um, after some discussion about having Paul play the part, instead, George Martin uh, decided to employ the same wind-up piano technique as he had used previously on Misery. So basically what they do is they, they um, roll the tape at half speed and George plays the solo and then they, 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 they speed it up. But it's just, Emmerich is just never says anything positive about George in that book at all. 
Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's been some years since I've read it. I must take it down again and give it another scan. But uh, yeah, it is a bit of an odd don't bother, don't okay, bother, okay, don't bother. I'll just use it to um, fix a wobbly table. But you, uh, you and I, you and I heard Paul play this. Yes, and so the Oops. last time we saw Paul live to date was the end of 2018, and he opened with a hard day's night. Yes, but not with that chord. When 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 they came out and played that chord, I thought initially, oh, has. Paul changed his tunings. Has he gone yes, down? Yes, I, I, uh, I thought he maybe not? dropped. I, that was my initial thought, but I don't think he has. No, he uh, hasn't. Um, it, it was just not the right chord or no. not the right sound. It didn't sound right. And uh, so you know, and he's starting his his gig with uh, you know this song, which you could argue is a is a John song, yep. and Paul is doing it. Um, you know, was it as good an opener as Figure of Eight? I don't know. I think. Uh, Figure of eight I think it was pop. better than I think, I think it was better than I definitely I definitely think it was better than Figure of Eight. Um, Imagine if yeah, you come out in uh, twenty eighteen and opened a gig with Figure of Eight. That's, there'd be one happy guy in the audience. <laughs> this yeah. one, <laughs> this and, one, yeah. you. and then he'd do this one. That'd be great. Anyway, we're getting off track here a little bit, and it also appears on the, the Hollywood Bowl Eight Days a Week album as well. But you know, if you're following the timeline here, there's still ten days left of filming on on the movie. But we now have a title and a song. Um, and you know, if you if you think about the movie, you know, because of the filming schedule, we don't see them sing a hard day's night in the film. It's used in that opening yes, scene where they're running yes. down the street. So uh so you know you don't actually see them open inverted commas perform it, close inverted commas. So when filming ends on April the twenty fourth, obviously we still don't have all the songs for the Hard Day's Night movie, but probably or for the Hard Day's Night album. But, uh, you know, it makes perfect sense at this point uh, to just go and take a huge holiday. End of part one. Intermission. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. End of intermission. Part two. Looking back at 64 for, for, for talking about this today, I hadn't realized quite how much time they, they took off in May 64. And again, you know, they're out of the public eye making a film. You'd think, okay, guys, have a day off after the film and we'll get you back in the public eye. But essentially, the four of them are away from May 2nd to May 27th on different holidays. And they're holidaying in different um, different kind of combinations. Yes. Uh, so George and John and their respective partners, Cynthia and uh, Patty Boyd, uh, they head off together. Um, and that, that I don't know why that strikes me as odd. Yeah. Um, but the, you you wouldn't necessarily, I think, put George and uh, John together. Um, you think? Not necessarily, no. And, uh, you know, George brings Patty Boyd, who obviously he's just met on the set of A Hard Day's Night. So, you know, it's literally a few weeks, maybe six weeks since they've started going out. And yeah. it's like, yeah, let's let's all uh, let's all go to Tahiti. Isn't that where they end up? Yes. That's they end up in Tahiti. So this is what we were saying at the beginning. These songs are written in Paris. They're written in New York. They're written in Tahiti. It's not, it's not Fortland Road. Uh, you know, no. it's in, um, they're not so nipping things, next door to Paul's dad in Tahiti. No. 
you what do you think of this? Yes, yes, Jim? yes, yes. I know, um, I know that. So yes, so they they go off in this this holiday. So again, there is this sort of strange dichotomy of the fact that, as you say, they're just on this treadmill, and yeah. uh, but then suddenly there is this long break, and yeah. it may just be that they sort of insisted, you know, after the the filming, I think they regard it as a pretty tedious affair. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of waiting around. You know, they get into the studio, they're in their home environment, they can rattle off a song in three hours and they can get it from start to finish. Filming, there's just a lot of sitting around, waiting, uh, you know, reading lines, rehearsing. Maybe they just felt, we, we, we need this break. Yeah. Um, and then Paul and Ringo kind of go off on their own jolly together, don't they? Yes. So, uh, again, it, it, it seems an odd split there. Yeah. Um, you know, but you would think it would be John and John and Paul and uh, George and Ringo would go off, uh, but um, you know, perhaps perhaps they just you know Need George to... wanted to go to Tahiti. Well, I, I, why not? Well, you, kind of, you kind of think in the early sixties, if you were from working class Liverpool, you think where's the most exotic place in the world that you could go to? Well, it's the South Sea Islands. It's going to be well. It's it's the first time in their lives they 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 you know, and it's it, again, it's only been a problem for a number of weeks at this point where they're like, well, where can we go in the world where we won't be yes. annoyed or disturbed? And it's up to Derek Taylor to arrange all of this holidaying. It's not that's like one of his first. Or is one of his earliest uh, jobs for the Fab Four. It, it, it is, and uh, if you've got that book, or if you if you, if you can find that book, it's very hard to find and very expensive to buy. Fifty Years Adrift. He talks about it in that, and he talks about the, you know, uh, organizing it and having to come up with sort of you know pseudonyms for them all. And then at one point mm. they realize George doesn't have his passport. And uh, yes, can we say yes, Maureen's Maureen's pseudonym? We need to talk about the pseudonyms here. We do because, need to talk about the pseudonym. Uh, Paul and Jane Asher on their holidays were uh, Mr. Manning and Miss Ashcroft. But Ringo and Maureen Cox, what were their names? Mr. Stone and Miss Cockcroft. Miss Cockcroft, any relation, Stephen? Is I, this I, a... I, I think that's I think that's my way in. I think that's my if I ever meet uh, Ringo. Ringo, oh, yes. I, I, Your first say, wife's pseudonym is the same yeah, as mine. The same as mine. That, and he'll be like, "Get out of my house." Yes. yes. <laughs> Peace and love. Get out of my house. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, so uh, you know, I, I kind of. Uh, you know, I kind of feel pity for Derek Taylor trying to organise such an uh, an intricate holiday in early '64 when you know we don't have all the mobile phones and communications that we have now. Trying to get four of the most famous people in the world to a very secret and private place and managing their passports yeah. and their tickets and their names and all these other code. The mo- the, yeah, the most interesting thing is that Ringo, for some reason, had George's passport, <laughs> and, and and then they kind of had. But he still got through. He still got through customs with George's passport. I mean, he still got to where they, they corrected it for the trip home. But but well, it was a different know, world, wasn't it? Different you know, world. It's like Paul uh, getting to France to do a fool on the hill with no passport, no passport. pointing yeah. at his face. Yeah. My say, face is my passport. Yeah, um, yeah, and the, the the George and John holiday is a, is you know they they go to Honolulu and then they connect to Tahiti and then they go off to the north of the island and then they're on a boat and they're getting sick and vomiting and unwell and it's it's not it's not what you would want from a Tahitian no. like uh, you know but there, there there is some sort of little sixteen mil or eight mil film home movie footage and there's a terrible picture of John and George wearing wigs and they're obviously trying to have as normal a yeah. break as possible you know yeah. as you say i think it probably is this idea of where can we go where we're not going to be mobbed we're not going to be uh, uh, recognized yes because uh, you know at this point they're kind of you know, if you wrap in the uk experience they've had a very intense year of uh, attention george says in the anthology that john spent some of the time writing a spaniard in the works and uh, you know they eventually uh, you know, even though they've got uh, you know, wigs and all sorts of disguises on. They do yeah. have a couple of days out swimming and enjoying the, the warm weather and, and snorkeling and but, being treated to potato-based Tahitian food. Yeah, but my favourite comment is George's is, is take on the whole thing. He said, we discovered that all those wonderful native girls that you read so much about had no teeth because the Americans went down there with their chewing gum during the war with Japan. So I just thought that's... That's that a very is, specific is, detail to notice. Very specific. His big takeaway is that, uh, you know, they have terrible... Uh, they have terrible teeth. Terrible teeth. So yeah, so they've they they have this month off on holidays. So in in this busiest of year, where they're doing an insane amount of things, they have uh, three and a half weeks from May second to May twenty seventh, uh, going off on different holidays together. Um, 
But when they come back, there is work to be done because, uh, you know, there's still this notion that uh, the the B side of the album needs to be finished. And this is where there's perhaps a bit of a split because we'll come back to this later, but you know, there is an American, a hard day's night album and there is a UK, a hard day's night album. And they've more or less done everything they need to do for the U S a hard day's night album, because that's essentially the movie songs. Um, But there is one more song that they're going to record that will get onto that album. And that's when they go back into the studio on June the 1st, 1964, They've got another two, three hour sessions booked and uh, they work on a couple of different songs that day. Now, they do record uh, the the cover versions Matchbox and Slow Down and they go off to the Long Tall Sally EP. But the next original song they work on is I'll Cry Instead. And there's a notion that I'll Cry Instead is going to be in the movie, that uh, they're not totally finished with movie songs yet. Yes, this is this is very um, specifically written for uh, the sequence, I think, where they're running down the staircase on the fire escape. Um, And you're so familiar with that. And and for the song, the soundtrack, it's very difficult to to imagine that I'll cry instead, either lyrically or, or just as a song would fit that sequence. But that's that's specifically the sequence that they're still they're still looking for something for that. Yeah, it's so iconic that moment where they break out onto the fire escape to Can't Buy Me Love. It's, it's I don't know, is it, is it a bit naive of John to say, oh, I know just the, the, the song to, to fit that moment. It's I'll Cry Instead, where he sings you know, very deep autobiographical lyrics. Like men weren't singing about crying much back then. Well, maybe some of the no, overall I mean, it, 50s songs, maybe. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't fit at all. But he's still, in 1980, he's still fixated on this. He said, you know, I wrote that for Hard Day's Night, but Dick Lester didn't even want it. He resurrected Can't Buy Me Love for that sequence and said, so even this idea of he resurrected can't buy me love. I mean, it clearly is something that annoyed him at the time and was still still annoying him uh, in 1980. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe some enterprising soul might want to graft I'll Cry Instead onto the Hard Day's Night sequence and we can, I might do that myself. We can yes. all see whether it works, whether when he sings, do you want to cry when there's people there? I get shy when they start to stare, you know, whether that equates with them running around I, and I, jumping I up and I know what down. that's going to be like. It's not going to work, but give it a go. Give it a go. I'd like to see it. Yeah, it's, uh, but it, 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 you know, the, the other point is, you know, can it be shoehorned into the movie in some other way? And it, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really make it as the long and the short of it, you know? No, no. Now, um, when the movie is released in the early 80s, it does get used as a, a kind of montage piece that's tacked yes. on to the start of the movie, which when I bought Hard Day's Night on VHS, that's how the movie started for me, was with that montage of uh, I'll Cry Instead before the main movie oh, itself right, started. Okay. I, I, I don't remember that, but, uh, you know, I... I You'll take my word that, for it. That, I'll take your word for that it. Was, that was the red it. box, uh, Hard Day's Night one? No. Oh, oh yeah, like a red and blue cover. Yeah. Was that? Yes. Um, yeah. I, 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 my memory doesn't go back that far. <laughs> I can't, I, you know, it's so long ago. Um, but there's still a lot to be do- done. So, uh, as we said, there's other tracks to be recorded for the UK album. So the next, uh, the next one that gets uh, pulled up is uh, "I'll Be Back," which ends up being the album closer. Um, that's a great album closer. That's a very good album closer. I mean, they 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 have form with good. Album closers, uh, and and they're they're still on track with this. This is a great song. Yeah, um, completely completely written um, by John says yes. John. Um, it was co-write according to Paul, <laughs> but uh, the, <laughs> the consensus seems to be that this this anytime at all and when I get home, these are the songs that he wrote that John wrote when they were in um, Tahiti. So perhaps uh, you know when he got back, Paul polished it up a bit but uh there seems to be a bit of a a disagreement between the two of them as to as to what the input uh was yeah and i'll be back as as kind of a certain subtlety that you might necessarily associate with you know some of john's stuff necessarily at the time which is usually quite strident and rocking and forthright yes again this there's this idea that there is just an increasing maturity in 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 the approach um and you know he's he's a he's a married man with with a kid and a house coming uh, you know planning and so it's a lot of different uh different influences are coming in um uh, and there is this notion that you know the first autobiographical song is help yeah 
I think I think we've kind of established that this is this is actually in, well, it in goes this back album. to there's a place almost you know that that, yeah. that is the first yeah, yeah. song yeah. It, it's based on uh, he he says it's based on uh, Del Shannon yes he says it was based on uh, Runaway I I have to say I don't hear that yeah it's but, not obvious but, to me um, but uh, you know we touched again a, a little bit on Del Shannon on from me to you episode um, but I don't I don't I don't necessarily hear that but he he's saying he was certainly influenced by uh, by Del Shannon. Yeah, um, and and I'll be back is a song that never gets uh, played live. It does have um, that great. Uh, I, I like that version that pops up on anthology again. You can kind of hear how they are working at uh, you know, working forming songs through, in the yeah. studio, and uh, so I think it's the uh, first take that appears on anthology one um, to give you a bit of insight into what's going on. So I'll be back is the last thing that get done on June first, but then there's another very full day's work done on June second, and when you put June first and second together it's a very uh very busy very uh useful productive two days in the studio june 2nd kicks off with anytime at all which is a song that i like a lot that kind of gunshot start it really makes itself known it's a great song it's a kind of classic lennon song of that uh of that era and another tahiti song we think Yes, um, possibly. I mean, they, they, uh, possibly. I think. I think it seems to have been written during that period. It just appears in the studio, um, and they 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 start working on it. Um, but uh, again, it's a John song. He he's the the sole author, and um, you you can hear it being worked out uh, in the studio. There's early versions of it. Um, yeah. uh, King Uriah turns up on anthology. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, it's still another one of those songs that, you know, he's still thinking about back in 1980, you know, it's, you know, uh, a C T A minor with me shouting in the background, you know, and, um, it's, uh, it's uh, a song that takes seven takes to get down. And, uh, but you know, they've, they've got other things to get done that day because they jump from any time at all to what I think is a, you know, extraordinary song, which is, uh, Paul's things we said today. Right. Extraordinary. <laughs> you, you don't like things extraordinary. We said today? I, I I like it, but I I, I think I, it's funny. I always think things we said today is more like a John song. It's kind of very flat. It's a very yeah. the, it, it's there isn't a kind of dramatic contrast in the middle eight that you would usually expect from Paul. There isn't. It's it just it's a song that. A little bit too long. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. Sorry, well, I, I appreciate I'm digging a hole for myself here. With no, lots you're not of people, digging a but... hole. I mean, I, I, the thing about things we said today is that it's, uh, you know, we've talked throughout these two episodes about, you know, Paul as a writer trying to find a voice or trying to filter out what's good and bad. Yeah. And what's striking about things we said today is exactly the stuff you pointed out is that it's not necessarily uh, trying to be liked as a song. It's not like I saw her standing there, which is like, okay, we're going to do a Chuck Berry type yeah. thing and you're going to want to dance to it. So things we said today has a certain, it introduces a certain subtlety into what they do. And, you know, you might necessarily notice, uh, you know, how catchy the song is or what's going on because it's, it's just has this kind of, role to it that's really seductive I think yeah I mean I think I think that yeah I can see where where, you, where you're going with that one of the things that's interesting to me is that um, when we're talking about the Dylan mm. influence one of the things about Dylan songs that this is they Dylan doesn't do middle eights yeah. uh, you know he just yeah, yeah. Um, you know coming out of that 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 folk tradition that it's just not an issue. It's just not a thing. And, um, you know, all the way through 63, 64, 5, 6, there's just no middle eight uh, is appearing. Is that um, why Dylan chose it for the Art of McCartney and, tribute album? And, and that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, uh, he he chooses this song. And I think, is, is that the case? Is, is McCartney, is this, we always think of, of, of sort of Lennon, uh, being influenced by Dylan, but I think this is probably an example of Paul, Paul being influenced yeah. by Dylan in that kind of, as you say, it's a kind of rolling feel to it. It doesn't have, it's not a song of contrast. It's not the kind of hook laden uh, song that, that, you know, they're not writing another, I want to hold your hand, which is designed for a, a specific thing. And, and it did just occur to me. Yeah. Dylan, Dylan does a cover of that. That's, yeah. that's the one. That's and, the one and, he decides to choose. Um, very, very interesting cover. It is. It is an interesting cover. Um, 
And this so is only what, maybe, like five or six years ago that album came yeah, out, so it's recent. It's recent, and I, I, I kind of do just as we're talking about it. I suddenly think, oh, maybe I like that song more than uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah. than I thought it because suddenly, I, yeah, it's, it's just kind of occurred to me that that's that's McCartney's Dylan song. Yeah, and you know, it's it also gets used as the the B side for the Hard Day's Night single in, in the UK. Um, but you know, it's a song that John writes. You know, even in, by yeah. 1980, John is saying that's a good song. Um, you know, and it's, it's a song that's born from this May vacation. So Paul and uh, Ringo are uh, off on the uh, Virgin Islands on a yacht called Happy Days, apparently. And, and Paul never won to, you know, you know, he, he loves a good lockdown. Uh, is he that, love. <laughs> he's in one of the cabins below deck one day on his acoustic guitar. And, uh, you know, you could smell the oil and the boat was rocking a bit. I'm not the best sailor in the world. So I wrote a little bit of it downstairs and the rest of it on the back deck where you couldn't smell the engine. And he also says, um, you know, I wrote it on acoustic. It was a slightly nostalgic thing already. A future nostalgia. We'll remember the things we said today. And if any pop fans are out there, future nostalgia, one of the best albums of 2020 from Dua Lipa. I didn't realise <laughs> I didn't realise that Paul the, McCartney had Paul named that album. album. Yeah. Which is, uh, he, gets good to a, know. he gets a, He gets everywhere. He gets everywhere. It's, oh, it's a long game again. And everything's connected, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, they do things we said today, John on acoustic guitar, George on electric rhythm guitar, Paul on bass and vocals and Ringo on drums. And, you know, for, you know, it, it is an understated song and it, it does sort of raise the curtain on, you know, things we said today could have slipped onto rubber soul. You know, it's not, it, it, it yes. is that kind of vibe. It, it it absolutely foreshadows that yeah. sound that's coming, that that kind of folk rock sound. And that is a fun thing to do as you work your way through the Beatles catalogue is to try and pull the song from each album that lets you get an idea of what the next album is yes. like. And that's yes, what I that- think Things We Said Today offers is, is a future of what they're going to do, you yep. know? Yeah. Um, so that's recording on uh, June the 2nd. Uh, we still have another, the album's not full yet. So the next song that gets recorded, the last one that's recorded for the LP, although whether they know it at the time or not, is uh, When I Get Home. Because when, when A Hard Day's Night comes out, it's a 13 track, not a 14 track EP. And When I Get Home, maybe my least favourite song on, on A Hard Day's Night. I yeah, I think that's I think that's probably the tank my, is getting empty. My, like the tank take. has been running on fumes for months anyway, and they've managed to pull out good tracks yeah. along the way. But I, I, when I, I get home, yeah, isn't I, the best. No, I, th- I I think this is this is probably everybody's least favourite, but no doubt we'll be told uh, otherwise. <laughs> but we are totally wrong, and it takes no. eleven takes uh, to get done. It never, it never really got a second life. Not only did it not get performed live, it didn't even get a, an airing on the BBC, where most songs usually would pop up at some point or another. But it just didn't make it. Um, so the album's got 13 tracks. It seems that the Beatles might have been planning to record the next day, June the 3rd, because they have session time booked for to finish the album and work it off. But as we've recounted in other episodes, what happens on June the 3rd is that Ringo falls ill uh, at yep. the end of this uh, recording bout for A Hard Day's Night and right on the precipice of a world tour. And so June 3rd is international. Here's Jimmy Nickel Day, where Jimmy yes. Nickel, the temporary Ringo star drummer who gets drafted in for the first few dates of the summer season. 64 world tour gets introduced to the Beatles and we know that they're introduced in a studio and instead of rehearsing the set list meticulously down to the wire they just sort of are surrounded they they just they they rattle off six songs and they go (laughs) yeah that'll do and then they said they send Jimmy Nickel on his way and uh, then the three of them each record a demo Um, and that, that that's just insane that they're about to embark on a world tour you know we've gone over this before but but you would think you would want to rehearse more than six songs with the guy that's going to be in a couple of days time on stage with you performing to you know tens of thousands of people across the world yeah but but they're probably at that you know great is the enemy of good point we just gotta uh, just gotta keep the show on the road and whether that june 3rd recording date would have been hey here's something for ringo or let's get a cover let's get ringo to rock out on one of his covers um you know that they 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 just didn't do that and you know the you know as you say they do some demos they do you know what to do the george song they do you're my world which is a paul song for silla black and they work on a demo of no reply and that no reply and you know what to do demos eventually surface on uh, Anthology 1. But yeah, the album has no 14th song. They also do a bit of overdubbing that day on Anytime at All and Things We Said Today before they head off on tour. But essentially the album 
is complete at that point. And, you know, they've simultaneously put together the tracks for the Long Tall Sally EP and they don't pull any of those for the help or for the Hard Day's Night album, which is curious. No. Um, even I Call Your Name, which is technically, although it's a, it's been given away original, or, or, or already, but it's uh, still an original track that they could have tacked onto the album if they wanted to. Yeah, and there's a Ringo song there. So, you know, they, yeah, could, Matchbox, they, yeah. they, they, they could have pulled Matchbox on, but um, then then you spoil that perfect Lennon-McCartney uh you can't spoil a perfect. No, you can't do that. So, so is, is it is it a, is it a perfect album? Is it is it? Um... Well, you know, it's this is you know. Let let's talk about the album itself because you know the release date pattern is you know in in the midst of all this we talk about them disappearing to make the movie, but of course in the middle of the movie being made uh, in March, they released the Can't Buy Me Love single in the UK and the US with You Can't Do That on the B-side. And Can't Buy Me Love is just instantaneously a massive hit, number one in the US and the UK. And as we said, it's the first post a British Invasion new release that they put yeah. out in the US. So that's a big hit. Then on June 19th, they put out the Long Tall Sally EP, Nine Minutes of, of Glory. Uh, uh, oh, and why that comes out, I'm not really sure. It seems, you know, excessive. But they put out Long Tall Sally, which is the only all original material EP that the Beatles ever put out. The rest of their EPs are all just kind of little album collections Cold of album, album tracks. Album, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's June 19th. And then on June 26th in the US, the Hard Day's Night album comes out in the US, the US version. And should we talk about the US Hard Day's Night album first? Because this is obviously the whole point of this exercise was that United Artists wanted an album that they could put out because they thought this group might be able to make them a bit of money, which is yes. understatement of the year. Um, but it's a different experience that the, the US Hard Day's Night album. It is, it is. And you imagine you imagine the executives and United Artists who ever proposed this initially way back in October 63 when the Beatles were not big, not had no traction in the US. By the time the film comes out and the soundtrack album comes out, whoever that person was must have got a good bonus that year, you know, um, yes. because they were the biggest thing on the planet at that stage. But the album is 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 different because it's it's padded out with um I think four orchestral instrumental yeah. versions. Um, so you get Ringo's theme, which is the this boy done as an orchestral treatment, which is Ringo walking along the canal. Um, yeah. I should I should have known better uh, appears in an orchestral version and that I love her and uh, Hard Day's Night as well. So it's a very different uh, um, experience. And, yeah. and what you then what you then get is capital use the songs uh, that sort of mops up the rest and then they yeah. put out. So again, there's a huge kind of overlapping of product yeah. coming out in, in America because of this United Artists um, soundtrack. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's so fast. So the United Artists soundtrack version of A Hard Day's Night, which uh, has eight Beatle original songs, so the seven movie songs plus uh, uh, I'll Cry Instead. And, you know, the speed at which that's done, because I'll Cry Instead doesn't get recorded. Like it, does, it isn't doesn't even exist until the 1st of June. And this album comes out on the 26th of June. That yeah. is fast. It is fast. And this is what this is why you end up with all of these different, you know, you get mixes songs which have extra verses and, yeah, and different yeah. mixes and things that are fixed and not fixed because as soon as things are done, they're having to fire them off to United Artists uh, uh, in America in mono and stereo. And so yeah. there's a lot of, a, a lot of, of sort of little quirky uh, aspects to these tracks. Yeah, because obviously we're living in, a, in an era before ISDN, digital lines and all the rest. So, you know, what, what's happening is masters are being taken by somebody in an aeroplane to the US yeah. and a physical tape drawn down by the first generation master is uh, is being, you know, taken to a pressing plant in the US. So there's going to be little discrepancies and um, and uh, mess ups. And, uh, you know, the, the, the United Arts album has eight uh, songs on it, as we said. The other five songs that make up the UK album end up on the Capital release something new, which comes out in July '64. Um, so that's got uh, you know eight uh, UK songs plus a further three tracks not uh, previously released at that point in the US. So they're both um, you know the, 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 there's a, a period of time where you know the soundtrack album is number one in the US for 14 weeks, and something new is sitting behind it at number two for nine of those uh, 14 <laughs> weeks. So you know it's a uh, yeah, it's 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 the high tide of Beatles it's, sales. 
It's absolutely 1964 is 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 the is the pinnacle of that. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that album comes out in the US on the uh, 26th of June. The movie uh, it comes out in the UK uh, on uh, July 6th. Uh, so the movie in the UK precedes the. Um, the, uh, the the album. So people going to see the uh, the movie in the UK are hearing these songs for the first time. It seems. Yeah, yeah. So apart from apart from "Can't Buy Me Love," uh, and you can't do that. These are these are new songs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the movie comes out in the UK on July sixth, and then the single and album comes out a few days later on uh, July. 10th, uh, where the, uh, the the album and the Hard Day's Night single with Things We Said Today comes out on the back. So although we often talk about the Beatles didn't pull singles from albums, they're cutting it fine there by having a simultaneous release day for the single and the album. Yeah, there uh, are exceptions. There are, there are a couple of exceptions. Um, and then the Hard Day's Night uh, single comes out a few days later in the States, but the, the States don't actually get the movie until August the 11th. Um, so, you know, we've got about a good six weeks between the... Um, uh, the US album coming out and it's obviously stuck at number one so people are quite familiar by the time they get to see uh, The Hard Day's Night uh, yeah, movie it, in, in August. It's interesting that you know in the States you're going out to buy the soundtrack album with orchestral versions of tracks before <laughs> yes. before you get a chance to see the movie. You would Logically you would think it would be the other way around but I, it's just this pressure to get product on the shelves, uh, get the cash registers ringing. So let's talk about that the UK album then, the album that's kind of slipped into canon uh, all these years later, because, you know, this this is, you know, you go to buy A Hard Day's Night now, it has settled on this 13-track uh, version. Is it one of their best albums of all time, or is it compromised, do you think, or what's your take on it? I, I it's, it's not an album that, I have gone back to listen to for a number of years. I mean, just to listen to all the way through. Um, but I, I've been doing that over the last week or two. And yeah, I, I actually do <laughs> think it's, uh, it, it stands up incredibly yeah. well. Um, you know, we talked in the past, um, you know, about help and that being a transitional album about Beatles for sale. And I think certainly if you compare it with the two albums before and the two albums that come after yes. uh, I do think it's kind of up there with rubber soul um, and the interesting point is is the point that you made uh, you know what are the songs here that foreshadow what's coming yeah. um, so you've got the, the the introduction of that Rickenbacker guitar sound on the title track kind of prefigures what's going to happen on on uh, ticket to ride and rubber soul the uh, things we said today that's the sort of folk rock style of, of that's coming on on rubber soul so i think of those first five albums this is the this is the strongest um this is the strongest album um so yeah i i i, I would Definitely, it has moved up the rankings um, uh, <laughs> I mean, for me. I, it's an album I love. And, I, you know, I think when I started to get into the Beatles, like many teenagers, you tend to tilt towards the old albums, yeah. uh, the, the later albums, you yeah. know, so, you know, your White Album, your Pepper, your Abbey Road and all the rest. Um, you know, something we said in season one when we looked at Please Please Me is that by accident or design, the Beatles turned out to be an albums act from day one. Yes. Uh, you know, whether they meant to or not. And that's to do with the fact of, you know, I think their original songwriting and the fact that they you know, kept albums and singles separate in some instances. Um, but you get to something like A Hard Day's Night, uh, which, you know, is, is you know, stuff that's put together in early 64. And what still hasn't really happened yet is you haven't had a full introduction of the Rolling Stones or the Kinks or the Who into the scene. They are still very no. much, you know, finding yes, their feet and not well known. 65 is the real year when they all is a, yeah. kick down the door and start yeah. doing their yeah. thing. So, you know, in, in the pop world at the time when, you know, the first rock and roll record isn't even 10 years old, that's an eternity. Yeah. And something like A Hard Day's Night comes out and it's, you know, it's a fully formed album and what's, you know, and it's kind of against the odds because it's written, as we've kind of pointed out across these two episodes, it's written and created by the pin of their collar. There is a handful of days in the studio where they're actually, you know, uh, recording. It's it's not even a, a week of recording if you if you put it all together yeah. in a in a row. Uh, and yet somehow they turn out a, an album of music with with all original songs. It doesn't even have you could argue the care and attention of you know the cover. The cover is possibly the most dated Beatles album cover out of all of them. 
Yes, yes. And the other thing I noticed on, on, on that cover, do you see the sequence in which they are? You would think that would be John, Paul, George and Ringo, but they've swapped. It's yeah. John, George, Paul and Ringo. Uh, that, uh, yeah. And the other thing I wonder about the cover is, you know, you know, as we mentioned at the start was, you know, what was EMI Parlophone's feeling about promoting a movie that they weren't necessarily going to make any money off? And, you know, it, you know, it says on the back of the Parlophone release mm. in the sleeve notes, it says, you know, from the soundtrack of the United Artists film, A Hard Day's Night for, for side one. And the, you know, the, the, the spiel on the back of the record, which is written by Tony Barrow, you know, is, is very clear about rolling out, you know, that, you know, how they are writing for the film and this is all for the film. So, you know, it doesn't say on the front cover of the album from the film, A Hard Day's Night, but it does say it at the top of the back cover of the album songs from yeah. the film, A Hard Day's Night. So I guess EMI just realized there wasn't any point in being coy to just say, oh, here, here's, here's an incidental collection of, of Beatles songs. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it, I think it is, it holds up. It's much more than just a, a, a collection of songs and it's much more than just a soundtrack. Mm. And I think it, it's, is head and shoulders above the two albums on either side. Yeah. Um, and I, I know think some when, people, some with the Beatles fans would probably wrestle you on that, but. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, one of the things that, one of the things, maybe do another episode right now on uh, with, with the Beatles. The Beatles. <laughs> one of the things about with the Beatles is they're still kind of dipping into covers and they're still dipping into show tunes. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're still trying to cater for, the, the sort of family audience, the kids, the moms, the dads, the grannies and granddads, you know, they're, they're trying to cover all the bases here. I think they're kind of, this is the first mature Beatles album. They're kind of moving yes. in. The next two albums are a bit of maybe a, a step back. Um, but this is, this is the start. And you could, you could, you could easily maybe, you know, if you include, Ticket to Ride in between mm. as a standalone single, you could easily move from Hard Day's Night, Ticket to Ride, Rubber Soul. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And kind of to finish the thought I had a minute ago is that, you know, as I got older and you go back to the early Beatles albums, something like A Hard Day's Night, especially when I, when the mono versions came out in 2009, I really couldn't stop listening to it. It's just, yeah. it, you know, it works from start to finish, you know, it's sequenced fantastically well, you know, obviously opening with A Hard Day's Night and, uh, you know, that B-side opening with Any Time at All, finishing with I'll Be Back. It's a, it's, 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 it's very thoughtful. I, I still don't know. Do we know who designed the cover? Is that lost to the midst of time? I, I don't know. I don't know. Actually, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that and, and see if we can put something up. But uh, you're right. I mean, it opens with that, that chord. And as, as you say, any time at all is like a, a gunshot. You know, yeah. that, that, that's, it's a big wall of sound uh, in a good way, not in oh. a Phil Spector way. Oh, man, I want to, I want to go, go off and listen to it now. By the way, as, as, as we talk, I am waving a copy of the album in Stephen's face. And, I have a copy uh, here, Joey. The vinyl version I have here is a version that came out about two or three years ago when they re-released them with Diagostini magazines. And controversially, the mastering on this, uh, they make a mess, I was going to use an expletive, of the opening chord. They cut off the first by 0.25 of a second of the opening really? chord. So you go, you go to put it on and listen to it. And uh, like when I bought it, I was like, yeah, get it home, put it on. And it, it just, it's missing the, the, the very first part of the opening clang. Very, very, very annoying. It doesn't make it well, any more, uh, um, you know, valuable, it seems, but it's just, it's, it's obviously a unique mastering for that album series. It I'm, sounds I'm, fantastic otherwise. I'm going to, I'm going to have to go and buy a copy of that just to complete. Just kind to of get odds the, and ends, just to get the slightly damaged opening <laughs> don't, don't put it in the box set, you know, to, to yeah. recreate the thing, just, you know, pause your yeah. CD after a split second after the chord starts. Um, listen, all, all this talking about it makes me want to go back and listen to it again. Um, you know, what do you think, folks? You know, we want to send you back to the records every time we, we, we talk about these things. Uh, a Hard Day's Night, is it uh, their best album? Is it the best of that kind of first pre-Rubber Soul run of albums? You know, maybe like some of the other records we've mentioned before, it doesn't have that kind of global appeal because there was a different version in the US. Maybe that's the version you're used to. Maybe that's the version you miss. Let us know what you think in all the usual places on Twitter at Beatles Pod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group and the uh, the All Singing Bells and Whistles, uh, nothingisrealpodwebsite.com. We've got lots of playlists up there. I can see there'll be a, a playlist for this episode of bits and pieces that we'll have to put up. Lots of foremost, you know, that we can lots put up of there. Songs, lots of yeah. foremost songs. Um, but yeah, uh, get in touch and let's keep the Beatle conversation going. A Hard Day's Night, the album. Um, but for Nothing Is Real, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.